When Rachel Mason was growing up in West Hollywood in the 1980s, her mom and dad, a nice Jewish couple who'd met in the Valley, went to work every day at their bookstore. What Rachel didn't fully understand as a child was that that bookstore was Circus of Books, an iconic LGBTQ location that thrived at a time when homophobia ran rampant. At one point, working with talent like Jeff Stryker, Rachel's straight parents were some of the biggest distributors of gay porn in America. And that made them a target of the Reagan administration, which was hell-bent on putting people in prison for porn. Rachel Mason is our guest today. Her documentary about her parents, Karen and Barry Mason, is Circus of Books, and it's on Netflix now. It's executive produced by Ryan Murphy, and as Rachel explains, there's talk of making it into a fictionalized TV show. Welcome to Movie Maker Interviews, brought to you by Movie Maker Magazine and MovieMaker.com. I'm Tim Malloy. We're going to dive right into my interview with Rachel Mason, which starts with her explaining a little bit about Circus of Books. Basically, you know, I didn't think I was going to be making a film about my family so much as a film about this really important store that was iconic in the gay community in L.A., And in a strange twist, as I started making the film, my proximity to it and my family's, you know, um, relationship to it became as much the story as simply the store itself, which had its own unique, basically its own unique uh, role in the development of LGBT history in Los Angeles, but in the wider world as well. Yeah. I mean, for people who don't know, there's the Circus of Books in West Hollywood, and then there's the Circus of Books in Silver Lake, and they mm-hmm. were both just major, major spots. But I think, correct me if I'm wrong, it seems like the West Hollywood one was especially important for visibility and just for like a place for LGBTQ people to go in the 70s and 80s when not as many people are out as are now. Oh, yeah. Well, not only that, it was really the, the, the first store to open was the one in West Hollywood and it opened up in the sixties actually. So it was even before my parents got involved, but you know, when you think about the role of the store, you really have to think about it in the context of the times and that being a homosexual as it was called then was a completely criminal act. And it was pretty much in line with pedophilia or incest or things that are just, you know, criminal behavior you went to jail for it. You actually had nowhere to go because nobody was out. It was not really a thing. I mean, there were a few maverick people that were pretty bold and brave in Hollywood to be out, but it could destroy one's career. It could ruin your life just to be gay at all. So when the store came into existence at that time, it was like this liberating, amazing thing for a population that was so used to never seeing anything that represented their fantasies to the point where when I was interviewing people of an older generation, they would speak about the store with tears in their eyes because it was truly like this thing that, you know, you can't imagine your entire life if you're gay and you have this fantasy that um, drives you to, you know, really it's similar to feelings I'm sure pedophiles have. Uh, They believe this is, and it is a, um, you know, a, a problematic perversion. And, and what they used to do was give people shock treatment and send them to jail. Yeah. So here's a store where you actually are seeing people just simply engaged in erotic activities. And there's like nothing happening except there's erotic magazines. So, you know, the, the, the impact for gay men 
specifically, and I will say, you know, there were gay women as well and, and trans people connected to the store, but it overwhelmingly was a place for gay men and for gay male sex um, yeah. to be explored. Yeah. Um, my uncle and his partner lived in West Hollywood, I guess about two blocks from there. My wife oh, and I wow. live about two blocks from there now, now, um, wow. both on, both on Kings road. Oh, and cool. I was just like, Hey, isn't like, are you familiar with this question? He was like, Oh yeah. Like this was like the spot. This was like, right. everybody, everybody knew about this. And there's a lot of bars in West Hollywood that are kind of the same thing, but I think, a a place we can go and get magazines or movies has sort of a, I don't know, a connectivity that maybe a bar doesn't, like maybe a sense of permanence that a bar doesn't? Well, I think, yeah. I mean, the bar right across the street, the Gold Coast, the Gold Coast is a famous um, old gay bar. And, you know, I think it's a, it's a slightly just different thing that requires, I think, a bigger infrastructure. And, you know, when you're selling material, this is where the question of, my parents and their involvement and how you know deep they got and how close they got to the edge where they could get in trouble. You know, a bar can close. And, and I mean, gay bars were definitely serving the community and doing something dangerous because yeah. they got raided all the time. But when you're actually getting magazines and videos and distributing them throughout the country, you're basically sending out a much wider network for you to get in trouble with. Yeah. And so my parents were, were doing something that, just had a lot more risk involved um, and there was more money to be made as well. But the risk uh, was, you know, the sting operations that the federal government was doing in order to try to crack down on pornography businesses. Yeah. The 1980s crackdown portrayed in this movie is horrifying. And I don't want to say too much and ruin it for people, mm. but your dad is basically seems like the nicest person in the world and just gets, wrapped up in something so absolutely ridiculous you just want to scream at the screen that he's mm. being for for anything involving consenting adults it's it's insane for him to be drawn into what he was drawn into um it's a good movie <laughs> let's just, that's let's great just that the drama felt so real i mean that the weird thing about it was that it was all happening when i was a kid and i had no idea about any of it and yeah i could not really i couldn't ask for a better dad and so the irony when you think about family values, and I do try to make this point in the film, is for all of the right-wing rhetoric screaming about family values, I really make this case that, well, what about people in the porn industry that are, you know, making a living and have family values? I mean, there's really not a family that I could imagine having stronger family values than my own. And I mean, I was just raised with the ultimate family values that you hear about the right wing screaming about. And yet uh, here is what they were doing was they, they were claiming was antithetical to yeah. that. So I, 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 I do feel strongly about making that point because yeah. people in the sex business, regardless if it's just simply gay porn or all areas of the sex business, have, are people with families. And they're often people that are just trying to have a make a living yeah yeah and it's interesting because just watching it i think a lot of the criticisms of porn are you know there's like a there's inequality involved there's an a power dynamic issues with people who you know get brought, brought into the industry and exploited in ways i feel like and i don't know maybe this is like gendered but i feel like because the gay porn is basically a male industry 
there's mm-hmm. sort of less of that problematic aspect of it. Definitely, it's a whole different thing. And I, I really feel like the distinction between gay porn and straight porn is almost like a world unto themselves. I mean, it's a, it's a complete separation because, you know, women and men have, you know, in our world, a, a difference in power. Obviously, you're talking about the power dynamics and, and also, you know, feminists talking about porn uh, being something that degrades women. Well, I, I don't completely agree with that because I do know plenty of very empowered women that actually are very proud of the work that they do in the porn industry. But there's a type of thing that exists when you have this sort of unbalance in power in our society and it's reflected on screen. But as you're saying, it's completely different with gay porn made by gay people for gay people starring gay people and whether or not they actually identify as gay when you see people of the same gender having sex on screen you're not at all dealing with the same issues and you know there's other types of fetishes within it that have to do with power but it's so much more in the realm of play that I just don't you know there's 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 all kinds of jokes and in fact so I think you know you can look at a lot of porn as being like ageist, classist, racist, all this stuff, but it's basically like any any good entertainment or comedy even where it's all up for grabs. All the ridiculousness of our world um, is out there on screen in fetish form. And I think that that's what makes gay porn really different and special. And also that it was a lifeline for people who had no other outlet and, and still have limited outlets. Yeah, I think the key is consenting adults. I mean, that's the thing right. that it keeps coming back to. And I don't know, it just w- watching it through the lens of now, what your parents went through seems so absurd. And obviously what gay men went through in that era seems even more absurd, like that they were so ostracized. Yeah. And, you know, that, that your parents were able to sort of come together with this with this community that was completely opposite from them. I mean, they're a nice Jewish heterosexual couple living in the Valley. Yeah. Um, they were in the valley, right? I don't know why. Well, they met in the valley, but actually, we grew up in West Hollywood. But okay. I love that everyone thinks that we went. You know, the valley is more suburban. Yeah. I did go to school in the valley. I went to um, high school at Cleveland High School in the valley, and you know, I, I, my dad is from Burbank, so. Um, yeah. But yeah, no. To 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 respond to that, that's part of what I think the appeal of this film is, and maybe even the if there's any advocacy that can exist which I really do hope because we still live in a very, you know, bigoted world. And as much as we like to pretend that we're fine, you know, as in, in the LGBT population, there's still hum- humongous, um, horrible things happening. And I think, you know, one of the, the reminders of this film is that really the importance of allies in the real world, you know, you know, it reminds me of the Holocaust when you think of all of the people that got saved and then you interview, you hear the interviews of the people that saved them. And they were just always like these, you know, regular people that really were not trying to do something heroic. And, you know, and I've said that to my mom, you know, I, cause she doesn't like to think that she did anything heroic. And so because we're Jewish, I can use that example. I said, well, neither were the people that were trying to save Anne Frank. You know, they were just actually thinking, wow, this is a this is a thing I should step up and do because it's the right thing to do. And I think that's really where, you know, the the tragedy that befell the gay community in the AIDS crisis 
you know, there were so many unsung heroes. And I think this story is a microcosm of the many, many, many others that are out there. Because I think that there was there was a lot of decency. And I think what we hear is what the government did in the face of this nightmare. And look at how right now it's sort of ironic that we have an epidemic right now that is being tackled completely differently because at the AIDS crisis, when that was happening, it was a full-blown epidemic and the government wasn't doing anything. So why? Because it was a group of people that didn't matter. And they were also a highly shamed group of people who were discriminated against and openly discriminated against. So I think you have this world where we think we're in a better place, but I think it's a very important reminder to see a film like this and say, well, actually, you know, who are the people around us right now that are being discriminated against it? And what can we do in our small ways to look out for them? Yeah. Yeah. God, it's nice when you can be proud of your parents and not have to be like, Oh, uh, they're racist, ignore them or something like that. I mean, to actually well, they still do drive me crazy though. But you know, you see my mom, well, never, you know, until the absolute end of this film, she thought this was a ridiculous project. So, you know, <laughs> I still contend with that on a constant. But, yeah, no, it's I, I am very proud of them. Um, but in a way, it's like I'm proud of them despite themselves because they would never have um, revealed this whole story. They would never have revealed the secret. It was a thing that they didn't want to ever talk about. And I really kind of had to pry it out of them. Yeah. Well, luckily, you were you were obviously very interested in film from a young age because this movie starts with you and a VHS camera. Um, you were making movies from the time you were a kid, which makes perfect sense because your mom was a journalist. Your dad worked in special effects, worked on 2001 and other movies. Um, it's kind of like that's how you make a documentarian. I mean, you take a filmmaker and a journalist and combine them. You're, <laughs> you were doing it from such a young age. That's really interesting. You know, I, I have to say, I, I always set out to be an artist. So when I look back at those videos, I look at my um, my work in the arts, and, and I my career actually goes much more into the arts. And this documentary, I think, in a funny way, is my very first attempt to make a hard-line, real piece of journalism. And it combines everything that I did exploring the artistic side of things, you know, through film. But, um, yeah, I actually, you're, you're really right to point that out because I do rely on my parents to this day when I'm writing an article or piecing together a story. Sometimes I, you know, I get my mom's feedback and my dad, you know, will give his two cents sometimes. Um, but, yeah, he showed me about focusing and using a camera. And, in fact, in the very first, I guess since we're talking to Movie Maker magazine, the very first time – you know, he, he looks at the camera. He says, Rachel, you're not in focus. I'm too close. And that's <laughs> the first thing he says on screen. And I was a kid. And I remember he always was teaching me about focus and using the camera. That was his Super 8 camera that I was using. Oh, wow. Yeah. Okay. I, I was projecting myself because I can remember walking around with like a camcorder. So Super 8, that's even that's even cooler. Wait a minute. Actually, I might have gotten it wrong. Hi, <laughs> <laughs> I'm not. I'm not quite that old. Super Eight was like film, film. This was the '80s. Right, right. Oh, that was like a camera. I love it, man. When did you first get the idea to make this movie? Well, so I, I took a gay and lesbian studies course when I went to Yale, and that was like around 2004. And I really, um, I, I just casually mentioned to the teacher that my parents own the store, and he said, "Wow." 
you know, that is a historical thing for the gay community. You really need to do something about it. And, and so I went home over the course of uh, the holiday and I made a little video and it was funny because my parents had gone to see a, a line dancing thing that Jeff Stryker was involved in. And, and I didn't think that much of it because it's just my goofy life in the LA with my parents. And I brought it, I brought it and edited it and showed it to the teacher and he was blown away. And he was like, wow, you know, this is really fascinating that this is your parents' life. You know, Jeff Stryker is an icon. I can't believe he <laughs> him. I mean, I didn't know that my parents actually worked with Jeff Stryker either and that how deep they were involved. I had no idea until I really started making the movie. But just then, you know, that was um, over a decade ago, I did know that I had something here and it was of interest. But then when the store in Silver Lake went out of business and was really about to close that's when I knew if I did not if I did not film this it would just go away and we would never capture it yeah yeah it is it is really sad to see this go and I guess it's just the end of I guess it's just the switch to digital media I mean I guess people just mm-hmm. don't like to go buy books and you know dvds as much anymore it seems like yeah. they're was there any thought of how to keep the store going? I mean, was there any way to convert it to like a live entertainment space or something or? Well, you know, the interesting thing is that it, I think it also connects back to my parents and their age, you know, they're in their seventies now and you know, it takes people that want to start a whole new business really to rethink a retail environment. And, you know, one of the stores in the store in West Hollywood, gosh, right up until the coronavirus hit right now, it had just become a retail space for a new store called Shishi LaRue, right. which is actually, yeah, and Shishi LaRue was a, um, a famous gay porn director. And, you know, that is really exciting that the store is going to have another life as a more high-end retail space for gay sex products. And I really hope it survives this coronavirus situation right now because it's really hard for retail right now. Obviously. Yeah. So how did Ryan Murphy get involved? You know, this is the magic of having a really great sales agent. And um, I worked with um, uh, this company is called Submarine Entertainment. And the wonderful, amazing mastermind named Josh Braun, who also is my film's executive producer. Um, he's done just, you know, pretty much the top documentaries you can think of. Uh, just Google Josh Braun and Submarine, and you'll see some of the films that he's sold. So he early on came on board and fell in love with the film and um, just really, I think, felt like the right person to get this story would be Ryan Murphy. And he basically uh, was instrumental in making that happen. But I will say, um, as far as like the business side, yeah. I am very much the last to find out about all the wheeling and dealing and how it all comes together in the magic of business. I've learned um, to be a humble beneficiary of it now, but um, you know, Ryan, when he met me, just basically told me that the store meant the world to him when he came to LA as a young gay man. And, you know, he said that this was a really vital part of history and that it spoke to him because he cares about family. He cares about gay history. He cares about the sex industry and he felt like it just had really captured everything all in one movie. And, and I was blown away at his, you know, feedback to me. And he said how, how great of a job I did. So 
Wow. Then he, um, yeah, he wanted, you know, he came on board, wanted to be an executive producer and had ideas for a way to turn this into a fiction TV series. So, you know, that's pretty much the next phase that uh, you may have to ask Ryan's team all about and uh, his publicist contact. But truthfully, I don't really, um, I don't really know exactly what the, the plans are, but um, they, they likely do. So, yeah, it's kind of interesting to be on the doc side. I've just been purely in the documentary space for it. I mean, watching it, we really wanted it to be a fictional TV show, but we also couldn't imagine it being better than the doc. It's wow. You know, it, it's kind of the Tiger King problem where you go, all right, they should make a they should make a fictionalized version of this, but it's not going to be better than the doc. The doc is the the movie wow. that you made is so so fascinating on its own, and to see the real people is incredible. How did you uh, how did you get Larry Flint? You know, I have known Larry Flint. For many, many years. I mean, I didn't know him that well, but I knew that he was instrumental in my parents' um, career. And actually, when I was a student, again, at Yale, the Bush administration was in full swing. And I invited Larry Flint to come and speak because I felt like he was such an important advocate for, you know, against government corruption and an advocate for free speech. And what I was seeing at that time was so horrifying to me. I felt like his message was really powerful. So I first met him when I was a student, and I and I and he actually flew on his own dime to speak at Yale, and um, I hosted the speech, and I got in big trouble because I put it on at Battelle Chapel, which was you know as a church, <laughs> very happy to have Larry Flint there, and um, I got in big trouble. And when his opening remark was, "Wow, this is the very first time anyone has invited me to speak in a church," so I, <laughs> yeah, and I met him back then, and then when I interviewed him. It was a very easy thing to get him because he, you know, really has admiration for my parents. And I didn't quite know that. I knew that uh, my parents knew him and that they, you know, he was a longtime business associate, but I didn't know that he knew them. And I was shocked when he said the things that he said, that they were, you know, of the very, very, very first people to ever distribute Hustler in L.A. I didn't even know that. Um you know, and he has a he has an encyclopedic memory. I will say Larry Flint, hands down, is a, a total genius. I mean, he's really a brilliant mind. And um, the fact that he could remember my parents' business at all with all the work that he does and that he could remember my dad, it just showed me, um, well, also a sense of loyalty, too. I think he really valued those early people that were there in the beginning with his company. Yeah. And another little anecdote is my mom, when she was a reporter in Cincinnati, interviewed Larry Flint. So that's in the movie, and that's just a very funny little twist in it, is that my mom encountered some of the people when she was a journalist that she would eventually you know, be working with. Yeah. It's funny because your dad sees an ad saying that Hustler needs distributors, and that's how he got involved um, with distributing the magazine in the first place, and eventually that led him to the store your mom must have gone, oh, yeah, I remember that guy, and sort of given her blessing. You know, I wonder. I've never actually asked that question. That's a really great question to ask. Um, I think, you know, my mom loves business. And and even though she she always, I think, felt like this was going to be a really small sideline operation, she thought, why not? And, and that's kind of where it all started. She thought, well, why not? We could do this. Sure, you know, they, she was really hoping that the dialysis machines would take off and that that would be their business. 
Yeah. And um, I think it really surprised her that they got so deep into this other business. Um, and she was always sort of hoping that they would have this, you know, something else that was a little more respectable in her mind to do. <laughs> are your brothers happy with how they come off in the movie? Are your parents happy with how they come off? Or are they just like, can, can they watch themselves? No, my brothers are really awesome and supportive. I mean, basically, I think they all look at it as like my project and they're like, wow, I can't believe you pulled this off. Because mostly what I've done in the past has been more artistic. And this is something that was just a complete, you know, real journalism, as you say. Um, and I think, you know, they're fine with how they, yeah, they all, no one said anything except that, you know, they think I did a good job. However, my mom is simply, she'll say this again and again, that she thinks it's a good movie and she wishes it was about anybody except herself. <laughs> so she's not happy to be the subject, but that's part of what makes a good subject in a film. You know, she, um, she really had a lot of conflicts and still does, you know, it was a secret for her for many years. Wow. There's a really excellent closing song in the movie. And I thought, wow, whoever chose this, this is just a perfect choice. And then I realized you wrote and performed that song. Yeah, it's my song. And thank you so much. And, and I mean, that's what I meant. Like I really have a background as a, musician and artist and that's and that's what I mostly had been doing up until making this film yeah and the song that I wrote is also a tribute to the kind of music that was being performed and written in the you know the height of the the gay 80s and 90s kind of dance music but I also wrote the song about the store this idea of it's called give you everything and I I love the idea that the song would be sort of like the soul of the store saying you know I want to give you everything and actually when the film comes out, I'm going to release a music video that I made in the store, too, and I'm singing in it, and uh, uh, there's a bunch of really wonderful uh, special features in it, like uh, the the amazing uh, adult film actor who's a trans man, who's also my partner, Buck Angel, he's in it, and Peaches is also in it, the singer. So is there anything else I should have brought up that I forgot, where you're like, why hasn't he asked about this? And right, yeah, I can tell you a little bit about my next projects, because that would be exciting for me as a director. Um, you know, my next project that I have going is a musical sci-fi film that I've written and I'm going to direct, and I have an amazing co-writer who um, happens to be a transgender actress, and um, her name is Rain Valdez, actress and writer. And um, the film basically deals with gravitational waves and black holes through a musical angle that connects back to gender and the things that we're dealing with here on our planet. And I'm really excited about that film. And I know that right now production is a little bit crazy with the coronavirus, but I have really amazing producers that also include Josh Braun, who um, worked on Circus of Books, and um, some of the... Uh, people from um, World of Wonder who produced RuPaul's Drag Race, uh, Fenton Bailey and Randy Barbado, and then um, Darren Dean who made Tangerine. I don't know if you saw that movie a few years ago. It's a really great film. Anyway, so I have a movie that came out that year. Yeah, that movie's amazing. Yeah, yeah, so so that's what's next for me as far as um, directing, and um, I have a couple doc projects that relate to Circus of Books that Hopefully, I can say more about. We can uh, we can have a conversation later about those projects. So can't say too much about them, but yeah. Oh my God, that's fantastic! Well, congratulations. Thank you. That's so excellent. Yeah.
I'm right. sorry. I'm sorry it's all happening at this point, but this movie is going to have this movie is going to last well beyond this, you know. Yeah, I mean, in a strange, weird twist, I think that um, you know people are more tethered than ever to their screens, and for this film to come out on uh, you know this moment when we all really need content to watch, I, in a strange way, I'm happy that we can you know release it when people really need it. So I'm very happy about that, but I, I really am hoping that this situation improves for everybody. So yeah, it's a crazy moment. 